This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm the Senior Editor of Entrepreneurship at Forbes. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. This show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If you've been struggling with something running your business, especially if it involves retail and e-commerce, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Let me emphasize, as always, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, someone listening to this show is probably struggling with it, too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. And with me today to discuss those questions is a very special guest, Marla Beck, founder of the Blue Mercury chain of beauty, beauty stores. Marla started the chain with her husband, Barry, in 1999. The first store was in Georgetown in D.C. Interestingly, she started Blue Mercury in part because she thought women, herself included, I believe, needed a better place to buy cosmetics than in a department store. Uh, but a few years ago, she uh, sold Blue Mercury to uh, a department store, Macy's, where she uh, continues to run it, all of which gives us a lot to talk about. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Martha, Marla. Thanks, Lauren. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. I'm good. So uh, let's, let's go back 20 years and talk a little bit about uh, the opportunity you saw uh, back then. Um, Amazon uh, did not yet uh, rule the world. The uh, dot-com bubble had not yet uh, burst. Uh, What were you looking at? Yeah, it was a totally different time. So e-commerce was brand new, and there was a dot-com bubble, which meant uh, you could raise money pretty easily if you had a good e-commerce idea. I had actually listened and met to and met Jeff Bezos at a business school in 1997 uh, when Amazon was only three year, years old, and he was actually explaining what e-commerce was to us <laughs> uh, because we had just gotten email addresses, and there was no such thing as Google, but I was completely intrigued, and, and he was de- you know, defining how he was going to bring books to the internet and sell books and dominate books. Can you imagine that? Just books. <laughs> you, you don't have a recording of that, do you? I wish. I wish. No, we didn't. We didn't have cell phones then, so um, <laughs> it was a totally different time. So I was completely intrigued. Uh, so I started to look for what I could bring to the internet, honestly. And I was always a beauty junkie. I knew everything about beauty products. I grew up in California and used a brand called Dermalogica when I was in high school. It was a young indie brand. Uh, when I was in Boston, I used to drive 40 minutes just to buy Mac lipstick, which was sold at one store in all of Boston. Because back then, you could only buy cosmetics at drugstores or department stores. There was no such thing as a freestanding beauty store. So I thought, you know what? Beauty products are hard to get. I'm going to bring beauty products to the internet. And so my now husband and I started Blue Mercury as an e-commerce company. And You know, I knew you thought about it. I didn't realize that that was actually how you started it. Well, that is how we started. We were an e-commerce only company. But back then, it cost almost a million dollars to build a website. Uh, you had to program everything, you know, hire programmers and do everything yourself. There was no such thing as Wix or something you could do off the shelf. Uh, and it was really expensive to do a startup company. And nobody was really shopping online. It was all AOL dial-up, uh, very slow connections. And so we launched Blue Mercury and waited for customers, bluemercury.com, and no one came. So we realized we were in trouble. We had only raised a million dollars in angel capital, uh, and we knew we had to figure out something else. And, you know, now there's a word for what happened to us. It's called a pivot back then. (laughs) That word didn't exist. It was, you know, you're failing and you're going to go out of business. Uh, So we actually did pivot um, because of the industry structure, the beauty industry, and the fact that you could only buy cosmetics at department stores and drugstores, we realized there was a retail opportunity um, that was bigger than even e-commerce at that point. So came up with the idea for a freestanding beauty store. Uh, we actually bought our first location to get a great lease um, and a couple of brands and had one location in 1999 in Georgetown. And that was the start of, you know, really what we called and we were um, actually um, giving 
giving credit for coining the phrase clicks and bricks back then, uh, you know, our, our clicks and bricks expansion. So we had the e-commerce site and we had one store, uh, but we couldn't raise any money um, because dot-com uh, world crashed and NASDAQ crashed. So we actually had to put our heads down and build a real business that um, had, had revenue and profit. So, um, you in know, retrospect, was, you were probably did better that way. I'm guessing. I think so. You know, there were there were four or five other uh, e-commerce companies that were doing beauty that each raised ten to twenty million dollars. And it's a great example of when you raise too much money and have to spend it all, and there's no market yet. You actually just have to shut down the company. So within two years, all of those other e-commerce companies that were in beauty shut down. Uh, and you know, we just expanded the store business, and then e-commerce came back. So we were we were lucky from that standpoint. That's so interesting. What, what was the the pivot like? What did you? Was it obvious to you that you needed to open the uh, you know the brick and mortar location, or was that something that you initially uh, fought because it wasn't you know the the original plan? Um, you know, it was obvious to us. We we had realized pretty quickly that we were too early in e-commerce. So, and because we couldn't raise volume funding, we knew we didn't have enough staying power. Um, so it was obvious to Barry and I that we had to have a store to generate revenue and also to give supply because um, that's the other thing that was to sign up great suppliers, but if you had a store, they were interested because it was a unique distribution channel. Um, so we saw the need to do it. We had investors that uh, were really upset with that because they had this thesis that pure e-commerce plays was the most important piece. So that meant that, you know, we don't want a store. Stores are out of fashion, and retail was really out of fashion back then. You couldn't raise any money for retail, sort of like today. <laughs> Can't raise money to expand retail chains um, back then. And so, you know, we had to really convince a lot of people that it was the right move for the business. And I, I think sometimes that happens. You have a lot of opinions about what your strategy should be, and you're the closest to the business. And so you have an instinct about what's right. And sometimes you just you have to stop listening to everyone and just go with your instinct um, because you're so close to what's going on. And sometimes you just know what the right thing is to do. Of course, that's harder when you need capital to do it, and the people with the capital are telling you something different. Yeah, but they weren't willing to put more capital in, right? So we saw the right on the wall. We would we would go out of business, right? So that in that you know we had sleepless nights, like a lot of entrepreneurs have. We saw the right on the wall. We were going to have to bankrupt the company. So that was really in our mind, our only move for survival. And I didn't start a company just to try one strategy and then if that didn't work, I'll <laughs> shut it down. Like, I, I, I always wanted to build, you know, great company that did something meaningful. And so I wasn't ready to give up in those first six months. So, uh, you know, the, opening the store was was, was the, the saving move for the company. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Marla Beck, founder of the Blue Mercury chain of beauty stores. If you have a question about Blue Blue Mercury or about your business, especially if it involves retail or e-commerce, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Marla, there's a lot of talk these days about what it takes for women to to raise money. Uh, What was your experience 20 years ago? I mean, you know, I I actually, I think I was lucky because of my background. So after I was in business school and public policy school. Which business school was that, by the way? (laughs) It was was the one up in Boston, Harvard Business School. Um, And I went to the Kennedy School of Government there. And I actually had a professor at the Kennedy School of Government who is a huge champion. He was a managing director at Carlisle named Dick Dorman. no longer with us, but um, he he was the one that encouraged me to explore new ideas, um, and he helped. Uh, he wrote one of the first checks for Blue Mercury because he saw something in me. So, um, and he was since he was a managing director at Carlisle, that added a lot of credibility. So this gets back a little bit to having a champion um, it, it, when you're when you're going out to raise money. So I had a champion in Dick Norman and um, a couple of other individuals. Uh, who helped make introductions to other people. And, you know, it's very difficult to call an angel network or call
hollow venter from cold. Uh, you really do need an introduction, and um, you know that that's what some of the studies have been going on about women and having a champion to introduce you into the, the fundraising network. And so I had that. I'm evidence of that. Um, and so uh, I think the key is, you know, I hate the word networking, but really finding someone that's going to support you and introduce you uh, to the right right people to help you you fundraise. Um, but you know, you're bringing up a problem that, that exists, which is women are only getting 3% of the venture capital funding in, in this country, and it's a really terrible thing. Um, and so I think there are a lot of funds that want to want to fix that and a lot of people that want to fix that um, because uh, I just think it's a huge opportunity. As a matter of fact, you and I were supposed to have this conversation at <laughs> an event called the Circular Summit that uh, discussed that issue in great depth. Unfortunately, we weren't able to have our conversation because it was too windy, of all things, um, yeah. a few months ago in uh, D.C. on a Friday. Um, it's windy a lot down here. <laughs> it was very windy that day. In fact, yeah. they, they shut down the airport, too, so it wasn't, it wasn't just us. Um, but let, 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 let's talk about that. It's, it's so interesting to me that you found your champion, you're in, an investor, uh, at, the, at a school of government that I probably was not the reason you went there. Uh, what, what were you thinking at the time you went there? And what does that say about the serendipity of where you meet the people who can change yeah, your a, life? That's a good point. So as an undergraduate at Berkeley, I studied public-private partnerships and how they impact government. I was, I'm was i always interested in sort of how you create broader networks beyond sort of a single sector. And so I, I didn't want to give up that passion of mine. Uh, and so I, I couldn't see myself just going to business school, and I couldn't see myself just going to policy school. So, of course, I, I had to do both. Um, <laughs> and Dick Darman is interesting. He was someone who had spent uh, many, many years in public service in the government. Uh, he had run the Office of Management and Budget. And at that point... In the Reagan administration, man- right? Yeah. And at that point, he was a managing director um, at the Carlyle Group. So he was, you know, giving back in a different way. Uh, in fact, he was one of the the first uh, to show me what a blackberry was years ago he had a <laughs> version and so um what's interesting is he, as he was giving back to the students he he was a mentor to many students um and so you never know where you're going to find someone that supports you in your sort of professional and personal journey, and so it can, it can be anywhere. I know many of us, you know, and probably a lot of people listening have, have had coaches or teachers or someone who takes an interest in them, and those relationships throughout life are so important. Now it's a two-way street. You have to get back, right? You have to be a, cha- you know, they champion you. You have to make sure you're communicating with them and, um, you know, making sure they get what they need out of the relationship, but I believe in the champion model, which is what I've had a lot, which is someone who creates new opportunities for you. A mentor actually gives you advice. You need that too, but a champion puts you on a new path. Um, And we all need that in life. So if you were just coming out of college today and and thinking about um, entrepreneurship, doing something like this, having to raise money, uh, what do you think you would do to try to find that person today? Well, I, I think what's interesting is you first have to decide in what are you going to do this. So it first comes back to do you have a passion or is there a burning problem you want to solve? And so you have to start with, you know, what that is and what the idea is. The other thing I'm noticing and finding that the people who have uh, the best time raising money aren't raising it with just an idea now. They're doing a little bit of testing and trying because the cost of trying or uh, something new has gone down so much. So, for example, if you wanted to start an e-commerce site, you can actually build one on Wix for free and do what they call a minimum viable project, right? You can or product. You can you can see if something's working. And I'm finding that people that have done more tests like that, uh, tested something, um, are, are, are having an easier time fundraising. Um, so it's, it's, it's easier if there's something tangible. So I would create a minimum viable product, something tangible, so that people can really see or have, have some data about what's working. And then the, the other way to start doing it is getting closer to the industry you're in. So for example, if I were wanted to go into beauty today, you know, I'd start going to some of the events. Cosmetic Executive Women actually holds a, a ton of industry events in New York City. Um, you know, there's Beauty Independent, a blog that talks a lot about what's going on in beauty. So you, you need to get as close to the industry as possible and start meeting.
leading people in the industry. And once you do that, you'll start to um, uh, be able to find uh, people that will make introductions for you. Uh, even I was I was um, speaking at Harvard Business School yesterday, and um, a student uh, had gotten through a professor to me, and I met with her before. So you have to use whatever networks that you have to get to someone that can help you. Um, but you have to be eager and persistent. It's not going to come to you. You have to work for it. Um, but getting close to the industry associations or the industry groups or going to industry conferences are helpful. There are a lot even in retail. The NRF runs a retail conference. Uh, Shop Talk runs a retail conference. Um, and these are amazing opportunities to really meet people. Everybody wants to talk to an entrepreneur you know people love new ideas and love growth um so so you know if you, if you work hard people will listen i'm speaking with marla beck founder of the blue mercury chain of beauty stores if you have a question for marla uh, about blue mercury or about your business call us we're at 1-844 wharton 1-844-942-7866 um, Marla, you were talking a little bit before about having to trust your gut and being closest to the situation and having to uh, sometimes ignore advice you get from people who aren't as close. Uh, I believe a, a few years later, you, uh, you raised money again. I think you took private equity um, and again had the situation, I believe, heading into the recession where you were hearing one thing from your investors and you felt something else in your gut. Am I right about that? Yeah. yeah. So in 2006, we raised a ton of money to accelerate our expansion. Uh, the goal was to go from 12 to up to 100 locations pretty quickly. Uh, what what we started to see in retail, you have early signals because you have so many numbers coming in from your stores all the time that you can study. And I'm a data junkie. So we started to see volatility in the store comp sales number. So in every business, there's a key number that tells you one or two that tell you everything about how you're doing. And in retail stores, it's comp sales. How's the store doing uh, versus last year on a percentage basis? We started to see the stores be more volatile, so up, down, um, and we couldn't correlate that with weather or anything. So, And what we had seen during the last recession was the same thing. So we used prior knowledge, which is before recession, store comps start to get volatile. Um, and we realized that it was coming because instead of having, you know, 15, 20% comp sales, all of a sudden it was uh, up and down and volatile by store. And so we went to our new investors who were amazing and said, you know, we should we should hold on expansion right now. Let's, let's get a little bit more information. Let's see what's going on. And you can imagine sort of the first reaction, which was, Oh my God, we just invested all this money in Blue Mercury. How, how can we not expand? Um, but <laughs> we just really felt like that was the right thing. And we ended up waiting. We were right because the 2007, 2008 crash happened. And then we actually expanded during the last recession because the rental rates came down for retail. So it was a great opportunity for us to step on the gas once those rates came down. And so Sometimes if you see something, you know, you don't really know if your gut is right, but you can wait and get more information before making a move. And we, we, my husband and I joke, we've always done the best when we try not to do too much, right? We sure. can wait and do just the right things if possible. I mean, everybody makes mistakes and we've made a million, but on that, on that critical one, we waited and it, it really did work out. It, well it must have been us. so hard though. Uh, I can just imagine having the success of being able to raise all that money and the excitement of uh, a rapid expansion to, to put the brakes on that um, must, must have been a tough decision. Yeah, well, what's, what's interesting is when you raise money, you feel an obligation to your shareholders to get them a return. That is your job. <laughs> but so those shareholders a, wanted you to spend the money. Right, right. And so we had to turn it and say, we'll get you a return, but it's going to take a little bit longer. Um, and I think, uh, you know, some investors aren't willing to wait because they have fund time horizons, so their fund may be three years, five years, or seven years. We were lucky enough to work with an investor that had a longer time horizon uh, and that has has a reputation and had a reputation really working closely with their founders and listening to their founders. So when, when you find a partner, an investment partner, whether it's angel or venture or private equity, uh, 
you're not just taking their money, you're building that relationship with them. It's almost like a marriage. So it's really important to make sure your interests are aligned. So in that moment, uh, their patience uh, and their long time horizon was everything. And so even though there were many heated debates, uh, we came to the right uh position together um and obviously it worked out but you're right in the moment it's painful you're fighting and you realize you just took all their money and and you know now you're telling them you're not going to spend it um, and, and, and also it's you know today looking back we know what happened we know how devastating the recession was but you didn't know that then and there were conflicting signals and it wasn't widely agreed that we were headed into uh you know the great recession yeah, but that's where we could go back to data and say, yeah, we don't know, but here's the data from 99, 2000, 2001. And look, the data is actually similar. <laughs> so that's if you can use data to help back your intuition, you're in the best situation. And I think that's a really important thing today because everybody's so wrapped up in big data and small data and data everywhere. Um, but there is a role for sort of, you know, intuition and gut in, in that, because, um, you know, the data helps, but it doesn't tell you everything. Um, but in that point, we added data to our intuition, and that helped come to a better decision. But all, the other thing to remember, though, is I think sometimes companies that raise money spend because they think they need to spend, rather than really saying, what does it take to build a great business with revenue and profit because that's really the job is to build a lasting sustainable company with a great mission and i feel like if you follow that path the money is a help it's not the money first it's not spending all the money first right sure um I, i think we we have always thought a lot about that even you know this morning i met with we have um like over 30 district managers now who run all, each run like seven to 10 stores. And we talked about how our mission today is still the same. It's to be the best at giving beauty advice. And so as a business founder, owner, creator, builder, you want to know at the core that you have something you're trying to accomplish that in addition to the revenue and profit. Um, Cause I think that helps, helps you decide how you spend that money you raise or, or whether or not you need to raise money. You, you said that uh, you were lucky in that you had investors who uh, had a patient approach. The, the, the notion of uh, patient capital is much more widespread today than it was uh, back then. Was it yeah. really luck or did you deliberately go out? Were you smart enough to look for investors who uh, were more interested in building something long term than in getting a really quick return? Um, I think it's both. So I don't think I've thought so much about the time horizon when we uh, chose which investors we wanted. And in hindsight, I should have spent more time thinking about that because I could have had a different situation happen. But what I did look for was was, uh, people who I thought were good people that cared about the business and weren't financial engineers. That was really important to me. And so the end of this group from our investors are all ex-McKinsey, BCG, more on the strategic and operational side and have built great consumer brands uh, before. So um, I think I looked for the right type of people and I, I didn't think enough about the time horizon. In hindsight, I should have, and that was luck. So, I mean, there, your point is, you know, it's like it's like historians. You can you can fit what happened in the past to a whole story, um, but at the end of the day, some things happen just because they happen, and you're lucky. Um, so, we, you know, on that front, I was lucky. Um, but on the sort of partnership front, we had been pretty deliberate about who we wanted to work with. Interesting. Um- so you, in terms of uh, data and the metrics you watched, you, you mentioned the uh, uh, comp sales uh, for s- yes. stores. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, what other things do you look for? And, and can you tell us a little bit about what they're telling you today? What, what are you seeing right now? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we, we look at, um, you know, a, a lot of customer satisfaction uh, uh, metrics from the stores. Uh, we certainly look How do you, you at, measure that with through uh, surveys you do? Um, we, we have a metric where um, we actually watch how many uh, 
how many clients in store are signing up to get our emails has always been a good indicator of the satisfaction with the service they have. So sometimes you can find these metrics that are interesting that tell you a lot. And so that tends to correlate with client satisfaction. What, what do you um, do? I've, I've heard a lot of retailers talk about struggling with this. They, they want to get people signed up uh, and they're not sure how to encourage it. What, what's been effective for you to get people to sign up? Um, so at when they're checking out, we ask if they want to be part of our mailing list. It's very simple. And we always know if they say yes or no, um, that tells us whether they've had a good experience. Because the process of um, actually purchasing beauty is very intimate and personal, and you're working with some, someone that may touch your face. You know, you're trying to help them find the right foundation, the right lipstick. So it's a personal process. If you have a good experience, you definitely want to be on that list, right? Because you want to you want to be kept um, informed about what's coming out. And Duty has a lot of innovation, so a lot of people people want to know that. And this is without a loyalty program. So we are implementing a loyalty program. A lot of companies use loyalty programs to actually help them. Uh, collect customer data so they can keep in contact with them. It's a more formal way to have a cleaner um, set of data uh, because otherwise um, your data may not be as clean if the clients um, aren't, aren't part of it, tracking their loyalty points. Um, but, but you know, we, we actually just ask at the register. It's the best way. Um, and uh, we, we send really compelling and personalized emails, and so that's also helpful to people. We localize them if there's an event at our pen campus store, um, you know, we would send our clients an email. So there is, you have to give them value if you're asking for something too. Uh, we let them know about special promotions. We have a lot of gifts we give away um, on Saturday. So I think you have to, you have to have some value you're giving to your client if you're asking them for their personal information. So you said that you, uh, that's one of the metrics you look at that you track yeah. for indication yeah. of uh, how satisfied your customers are. H how much does it vary? Um, it varies widely uh, by location, uh, and it's highly dependent on the leader of that location. So as with, as with anything, the leader is everything. The store manager is everything. Um, so if the leader, uh, if that's important to them, they spend a lot of time on that, coaching that, uh, working with the teams on that. And if it's not, <laughs> you, you see the numbers. That, so you can have a new store manager come in, and it can change dramatically based on just one person. So we, we really say and believe that our store managers are the most important people in the company. They drive what happens with our, our clients and our, our customers. They drive that energy in the store. And that, that to me is always the magical thing in business. There's this, you know, you can measure a million things, but the, there's this concept of energy where you where you walk into a location and you can feel whether it's there or not. I wish I could measure that. <laughs> that would be the ultimate metric. So you think that the uh, the variation is dependent upon um, things that you can control in the store versus the economy? Yes, on that that metric. Again, not not the sale. I mean, yeah. I mean, the the sales number metric, like the comp store sales, is very you know economic dependent and news dependent. And we find the news even affects whether people really? go out shopping. Yeah, yeah. How, what, so, what do you find? How do, how so? I, I always say when the well, the, if there's a really like down day in the stock market, you know, uh, we find that clients don't love to shop as much. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, news matters. The news creates um, this sort of energy because shopping can be necessity and shopping can be impulsive. And so it affects the impulsive piece of it. Um, so, uh, you, you know, people are happy now. But, you know, business, there's a sort of a euphoric um element to shopping right now, which is oh, I find fascinating. I, I think some people are going shopping these days because they can't stand to look at the news. Yeah, that could be. <laughs> that could be it. Um, so, no, but metrics are important. And I always say, you know, with e-commerce, there's a million metrics you're measuring all the time. It's more like you have a trading desk of metrics you're measuring. So that, that's adding a whole new layer of complexity as you, as you look at what's going on. Is, are you thinking anything in terms of where the economy is headed based on the, the metrics you're seeing right now? Oh, we feel good. We feel really good. Um, so... 
the the economy feels good. People are shopping. People are happy. There's a ton of innovation in the industry, and that to me is always a good sign uh, because in the beauty industry, there's always new entrepreneurs starting new beauty companies. Um, Barriers to entry are actually fairly low. So when you see a lot of activity, you know the the economy is good. the wave of innovation is so strong right now, which, um, you know, has a, a little bit of a Lollapusa effect. It just keeps bringing more people in store to see what's new. And so then more people create new products. So it's, it's an exciting time in the beauty industry and the whole um, natural trend, which we, you know, we've, uh, we've been knowing it has been going on for about 10 years is starting to take hold in a big way. Um, so um, I think there's some interesting um, things going on. Marley, you, you told us that you uh, your original idea was to do Blue Mercury as an online store exclusively, um, but then had to go into retail. D- did you did you maintain the website all the way through, or did you give up on that for a period of time? No, we maintained it all the way through, um, and certainly the technology got better, and the cost to maintain it went down. Uh, so technology was on our side on that front. Uh, but as with anything, you're constantly upgraded. We upgraded our platform again last year, uh, so you're continuously changing and adjusting what you do. What percentage of your st- sales are online today? Uh, I, I would talk about that. I actually can't since I'm part of the company now. I so. see. Sorry. I understand. I understand. So, let's, let's just say it's a nice number. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. Um, but perhaps you can tell us how you see things uh, evolving going forward. How do you see uh, combining the, the two sides of the, the business as you go forward? Yeah, I mean, my my real vision and where I see retail headed is uh, that you can get your products anywhere you're standing in that moment. That's my dream. Um, uh, but <laughs> by I, drone? Uh, well, no, even by delivery, by Uber, um, how, however you do it. I mean, I, I think I was just uh, talking to someone about this interesting company run by Ron Johnson, who uh, ran the Apple stores for Steve Jobs called Enjoy. Now they have a whole service where they'll partner with uh company to bring products to your home and set them up. So, for example, if you want to install Sonos, uh, they'll, they'll send someone to your home and they'll set it up for you. And it's a very great experience because, um, you know, I, I think or IKEA, right? Anything, uh, right? And this idea that everything should come to you has been driven by Uber, by on-demand food like Grubhub. And I think the younger generation is going to demand uh, that the transactions can happen wherever they are. But there's really two parts to shopping, right? One is information gathering, and the second is the transacting. Uh, and so that's just the transaction part. The information gathering is happening everywhere now. So I think you'll still need stores or some form of stores for this sense of place. And that's why I think you have these classic e-commerce businesses, Warby Parker, Casper, even Glossier, great beauty business that was online only, that continued to look at opening retail locations, because then you get back to this sort of experience and the feeling for a brand that is still hard to get on a, on a screen uh, or through your, through your phone. And so I think the information gathering piece is still going to mean that you need stores, um, but the transacting part can, will happen anywhere. I mean, how, ma- how many times have you showroomed, which is you go somewhere, you look at something, and then you go later and buy it online. Everybody does that. And I think, you know, we, we have to admit that, come to terms with that, and realize sort of this, this idea of creating places for people to explore brands will be completely different from where and when they transact. I've talked to some retailers who continue to expand their brick-and-mortar stores in part because it drives more online sales in the areas where they open the stores. It's a, a form of marketing, essentially. Is that your experience as well? Yeah. I mean, it's a form of customer acquisition, right? So you can spend customer acquisition marketing dollars in any way. You can you know, spend on buying Google search words. Uh, you know, you can spend on opening a retail store. And that, you know, for for many years since I've been in retail, you know, a lot of brands open locations on Fifth Avenue, not because they're profit centers, but because they're marketing centers. And so a retail store is just another form of customer acquisition that is sometimes cheaper than the amount you have to spend uh, to buy certain Google AdWords uh, to drive clients to your site. So uh, I I think um, everybody's looking at 
how they spend their marketing dollars, how, where, um, and why. You know, you have brands that go to these music festivals, Coachella, and do pop-up stores because that's a great way to do customer acquisition. I mean, we will we'll never be in a screen-only world. It's it's just that re- retail and exploration of brands will happen in so many more places than they ever have before. I, I want to ask you what you think these stores of the future uh, will look like uh, for you. But first, could, could we go back? If if your customers could go back and walk into that first store in Georgetown 20 years ago, would, would they recognize it? No. Uh, no, we're on our third or fourth remodel. It might be even be the fourth. So, no. Um, you know, if I think about what what it looked like, I mean, even the color scheme was different. It was more purple. Um, it was more feminine. Uh, you know, we didn't have a, a, as many brands or as much stock. It was a little bit more like a showroom. It was more um, pristine. Uh, now the stores are pretty packed with product because there's so much variety and op- innovation available. Uh, but, no, they would be... <laughs> That store would be unrecognizable at, at that point. Um, so, um, no, in fact, we moved to a new design of an all-white store, with, um, and we got rid of our cash wraps at a lot of the new stores, um, you know, where people check out because everything's mobile now. And so we continue to evolve the model to be more uh, customer-centric, which is, your, you know, you bring the mobile to them. Um, so the store, a store of the future will continue to have services. I, I think we've always done a lot of services in our locations, whether it's brow styling or waxing or facials or massage, um, and that's always been part of the beauty experience. But now you realize these are services that people will continue to need that can't deliver through the Internet. Um, so, um, but, but having that experience of someone who wants to come in and have their makeup done by a professional before they go out to an important dinner, um, it, it continues to be a big piece, an important piece of why clients come into the store. Uh, so, so I, I think having an experiential business is, is really, really important. We do makeup lessons for teenagers and, you know, we do skincare consultations. We have a lot of events with our brands because beauty is such a tactile um, product. Uh, so uh, I think um, brands that can have client experiences uh, wrapped up with their products will will continue to expand sites for that reason, too. We talked a little bit about uh, your being a data junkie and the metrics that you follow, specifically about the brick-and-mortar stores. What do, you, what do you look at in terms of data online? My God, the reports are so thick. <laughs> it, you know, it's visits, it's conversion, it's you know, you're looking at email, you're looking at social engagement. You know, I wish I wish someone could come up with a silver bullet for what to look at. The one metric for digital that tells you everything, uh, but nobody's come up with it yet. Uh, so, and I think you know, you have so many data scientists that are producing reports um, that, that tell you so much um, that um, there, there's just hundreds of uh, metrics on digital. I mean, at the end of the day, I look at revenue, whether revenue is growing, right? Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the most important. Um, but, but the number of metrics that you can look at and turn around on, on the digital um, data set is huge, which says something for young people today. I mean, the importance of getting some sort of analytical background is more important than ever. Um, and I think about that. I have teenage kids. I'm thinking about, you know, how are they continuing to drive their analytical skills? But um, the ability to, to do analysis will be um, wrapped up in almost every function uh, going forward. Um, and so, so I think continuing to build analytical skills uh, is critical for anyone. You mentioned that one of the metrics you follow in the brick-and-mortar stores is the number of people you can drive to give you their email addresses and sign up for uh, your newsletter. Is there a corresponding uh, figure that you look at online with the newsletters? I mean, yeah. I mean, you have you have a lot going on. So you lo- look at uh, you know open rates. You look at conversion, um, which are classic mail order. Um, you know the conversion rate of you know you send so many, this many people open it, and these ones convert. So you may have a really fun email that a lot of people open, but it doesn't convert into sales. And you may be willing to to be okay with that. Uh, and then you you may have uh, you know a, a lower um, open rate, but a very high sales number because of what you talked about. So, um, you know, those, those sort of um, 
those sort of metrics are the most important. And you look at opt-out, right? How many people are deciding to unsubscribe <laughs> to your list? Um, so, uh, but the more you, we're finding the more you personalize, the more you target something to the individual level for a brand they like or a product category they like, the more they open. And so it's, it's interesting. It's, I call it, I call it e-commerce. Sometimes you're day trading because uh, you're, you're, you're trying to figure <laughs> out um, how to engage that client at the personal level. So you're constantly tweaking and day trading and testing. We do a lot of A-B testing where you'll you know, send different types of emails to groups that look the same to try to figure out what engages them more. Um, so there, there, there are so many different things you, you can do um, in terms of testing what works now, which is, which is interesting because in the stores you don't have that sort of uh, you know, test case, right? It's much more the, you know, the process at which you help a client. Um, this one is you're trying to get their attention to show them something new and see how they react to it. Uh, so very different, um, but but it's it's the old model of advertising, right? Um, so that, that's how you used to advertise. And we deal with a lot of influencers, which people who deal in retail and deal in consumer products, um, you know, you try to get your hand, your products into the hands of people uh, that will blog or post um, on Instagram about it. Um, or do you know YouTube videos, and so we do send a lot of product out. Um, so there are so many more ways to try to reach your client than there used to be. It used to be when we started in the beauty industry, it's, well, you know, it can be overwhelming. There's so many ways. Uh, yes. Can and you, you have to find the way that works for your client, um, and it depends on the client. You know, if we're targeting some of our teen customers, we'll focus on Instagram. You know, a lot of our moms are in Facebook groups, and so we do a lot of Facebook posting. Uh, so, uh, or you know, it may be that you want to put an ad on, um, you know, a, a media site that you know where your customers go, like a, you know, a Racked or you know, a, one of the um, Refinery29. So, yeah, there there are a million more options than there used to be. It used to be in the old days, we just went to the beauty editors at the major magazines and told them what we're up to, and then they put our products in, and then we had customers come, right? It was very such a linear process. Now it's much more amorphous, uh, and you're trying to figure out what resonates with, with your clients uh, and um, what they react to. But we find that our core clients, so not client acquisition, but... But in terms of client retention, they they like the email. They like email still, um, and finding out what's new from email, or finding out tips and tricks about beauty products. So you don't just send product emails; you're actually sending content to them that adds value because you're teaching them about something new or how to do something new. Have you learned anything uh, particularly helpful in terms of identifying influencers and, and getting them to to share what you want them to share? Uh, you know, the beauty industry is easier because everybody likes uh, free beauty products. Um, so, um, you know, and it, it's so interesting because you never know what, what will hit with certain um, uh, influencers. So we just got a call from an influencer who wanted to try our CC cream, which is like a tinted moisturizer with an SPF, which is a very popular best-selling product for us, but not something that Instagram users usually like because it's not as visual as a, a colored lipstick. So that's the other interesting thing about beauty. There are so many things that um, are highly visual, like the mask business has expanded exponentially because people put on masks. It's very visual. It shows I'm taking care of myself. So it's a very um, emotional post. Uh, as opposed to, you know, putting on a foundation or a mascara. And so uh, Instagram and social media is really driving the sales in certain product categories because of how visual they are. So so it's, it's sometimes uh, technology drives the product categories. I find it fascinating. That's really interesting. You went into this business 20 years ago. You disrupted the department stores and the uh, the drug stores that were selling most of the cosmetics at the time. You just talked a little while ago about all the excitement, all that's happening uh, in the beauty industry today and how you know the barriers have come down. There's so many different uh, people going in so many different directions. Uh, do you worry about who's going to disrupt you? 
Um, you know, it's it's my job to always find the next growth opportunity. That's how I see it. So, of course, but I try not to look at the competition. I try to look at the customers and what they want next. Uh, so, what are the products? So, many of our product ideas come from what our customers want. I mean, we just launched a product called Fast Blast cleansing cloths. They're um, cleansing wipes you take on the, on the go, like to the gym or when you're traveling, because our clients said, I don't want to travel with a cleanser in a tube that's going to leak all over my gym bag or my suitcase anymore. So a lot of our new product ideas are coming from our customers, and that's about being out in the in the stores, listening to, to what's important to them and what's missing. And I think your job as a leader is to listen like that and to to really try to figure out where the growth opportunities are. And that's how we've been able to grow over the years. So it's not just stores. We launched two brands. We launched a vegan cosmetics line, and we launched a clean clinical skincare line because we we were hearing from the customers that what they wanted in the stores was missing. And so I think that is the job of a leader is to find what's next, but to continue to invest in what you have. You can't just find the next shiny object. You have to continue to invest in what you have to and build that up. So, yeah, I mean, we're, everything is being disrupted every day. It's so easy to find out what everybody's doing now um, that, that I think every business is being disrupted at all times. But your job is to stay the course with what you're doing if that's the right thing, but continue to add new revenue and growth streams because if you don't do that, of course, you're going to get in trouble at some point. Was that a big step for you to make the decision not just to sell other people's products, but to uh, develop your own? Yeah, I always wanted to do it. I wanted to do it when we had 10 stores. And my father-in-law, who's very wise, said, wait, you just figured out the store business. Do that for a while. Uh, so, And the truth is, at that point, we didn't really have scale. Uh, so, you know, when we launched M61, the clean clinical skincare line, we had 60 locations. And so we had more scale. So it made sense to take a piece of the revenue stream and the profit stream from another business to start to invest in a new business. Business. We were big enough to do that. And then uh, we launched the vegan cosmetics line two years ago. And so we were certainly at scale for that. And so um, I had always looked at that and had the dream of doing that. Um, but it wasn't the right time. It was too early in the business cycle to try something new um, without fully investing in our other business. And so even now, uh, you know, our team's like, what's your next idea? What can we do next? I'm like, you know, let's, let's work on these two businesses while we think about what's next. Because they, when something's experiencing huge growth, you, you don't want to take your eye off that. You want to keep investing in that while you look for the next thing. And then when you're ready to do that, you do that. But it was, you know, it was a, it was a hard a lot of people said, um, you know, your brands are going to be upset, but they weren't upset at all um, because we, we had such scale um, and it was time for us to do that. Well, it also sounds like you weren't introducing products that were competing directly with the brands. You were trying to fill uh, needs that weren't being met. No, it's a good point. So, especially with the vegan cosmetics line, uh, you know, we didn't have a vegan, paraben-free, chemical-free mascara in the store. So, clients were asking, we're like, okay, no one has it, we're going to create it. So, definitely, we were filling gaps that, that we were being asked for. So, you know, that's a good observation. It's still, it's, it's a huge step to go from, you know, running uh, retail outlets to being a manufacturer. There, there must have been a few surprises along the way. Um, there are always surprises when you're manufacturing. Um, so, and we, you know, and we, we just had one. So we're launching our first sunscreen in May. Uh, and sometimes you design a product, you come up with the formulation for it. And then when you go to scale up production, something goes wrong. So something's always going wrong when you're manufacturing something. Um, but yeah, but just like anything, you, you learn what could go wrong and you start to control for it. So, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, or if we launched our first line, M61, with eight items. Uh, it probably took us two years to develop them. Uh, and, so, you know, it takes a long time to do something new, but you start to get the hang of it, and you get better at that, and then you have new problems, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, as with starting any business, there are a million things that go wrong up front, and then you're trying to control for the ones that could kill you, right? <laughs> so, uh, and then once you control for those, then you control for, for the next 
level. So, I mean, you know, we had a batch of products last year that turned, um, you know, a different color. So vitamin C is an inherently unstable product. And so our vitamin C products turn brown. We had to clear the shelves of them. It's sort of a cost of doing business. And then you have to figure out how to fix that. So, but just like with retail stores, you know, our first couple stores were way over budget, right? And then you figure out how to manage the building process and you fix that. And then you find the next set of problems. So I think, you know, we always say that um, if there weren't problems, you wouldn't need managers and leaders. So that's your job <laughs> is to manage the problems. We only have a couple minutes left. You're obviously thoroughly engaged uh, and invested in this business. Uh, can you tell us quickly what prompted you to sell it and how it's worked out, uh, yeah. essentially being an employee again? Yeah, so, I mean, a couple of things. One is we were getting a lot of offers, uh, so we decided to explore it. But the other thing is we were building every department from scratch. We were growing really rapidly. We were building the whole back of house. We were building HR department, finance department, our technology department. So everything from scratch. And, it, yes, it touched the front, the customer, um, but it was it taking a lot of time to build all of those departments. And so in partnering with Macy's and selling to Macy's, we were able to um, scale more quickly because we didn't have to build everything from scratch. They have an amazing innovation lab in San Francisco. They're actually uh, top 10 e-commerce um, uh, revenue providers in the, in the country. And so all of a sudden, we had all of these resources. We didn't have to build from scratch anymore, and we could expand more rapidly. So since the acquisition, we've opened well over 100 stores uh, and launched over 100 SKUs so, um, in our private brands. And so it, what it let us do is focus on the customer and doing what served the customer, uh, and leverage. it let us leverage their finance and accounting and technology in the back of house. Um, so it's really been a great uh, marriage from that standpoint, which is, it let us it let me work on the things I love to work on. And you don't miss being <laughs> being completely in charge? You know, I am completely in charge, which has been interesting. So we're headquartered in Washington DC. We're a division of Macy's. Um and uh you know, we really um been incubated and left alone uh, so, so that we can grow aggressively. So I, you know, I, I attribute this to sort of Terry Lundgren and Jeff Kinnett, both, you know, the, the CEO that just retired and the current CEO of really having the vision to say, we know you move at a pace that's far um, different from the pace at which we move and that you have your own way and your own style and your own culture. And we're going to give you the resources you need and then stand back and see what you do with and it sounds it, like, once again, you uh, you found the right investor. Found the right partner, yeah. yeah. Marla Beck, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been fascinating. Um, if you want to keep up with Marla, you can follow her on Twitter, at BeautyCEO. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.